Welcome back to the 155th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including DeSantis is getting ragged, kind of like Sarah Palin did back in the day. U.S. regulators are trying to reclassify where marijuana sits on the drug schedule, and a article coming out of Guatemala talking about how the system, the election system, may actually be rigged and the consequences of that. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive, ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So why is one side of the aisle always, you know, to blame for things that go wrong or things that are not exactly planned or just for doing one particular thing, they always get blamed or something happens. They are blamed for it. We can never say, hey, maybe there are multiple factors here. And this is in politics, obviously. I don't think our culture has fully slipped into the part where nobody can take responsibility for anything. But on the political side, it, it does appear that way. If something happens, if a terrible tragedy happens, there is always someone to blame politically. If you look at hurricanes, how they're maybe some people say they're increasing in strength, some people say they're increasing in number. The data doesn't necessarily support either of those definitively, but of course the talking point is all oh, the people that don't care about climate change, then they are the ones that are the problem. Or if you have it on the inverse side, if there are an increasing number of certain social phenomenon that one side doesn't like, they just instantly blame it on the policies of the other side. So you could see how, of course, this is a problem. We can't just keep blaming each other for everything. So why is it like this? Is it just the perverse incentives in politics? Has it always been this way? Is it human nature to demonize the other? Or has it actually gotten worse? Because it kind of feels like it has. But at the same time, it, during my entire life, it really has been semi like this on most political fronts, at least from what I've observed. All right, let's jump to our first article that comes from the Washington Free Beacon. Ron DeSantis gets the Sarah Palin treatment. So for those of you who don't remember Sarah Palin, she ran for vice president with McCain. She was a prominent figure in Alaska politics. You know, she was kind of the darling of the right there for a little bit, you know, a female charismatic politician. And she got into a little bit of a lawsuit with one company in particular for reporting that she had incited a problem, incited an incident that ended up hurting Gabrielle Gifford. So there was this talk about, hey, what she had done in order to cause this attack on this very kind, lovely woman, I believe who's in Arizona. And now DeSantis is, you know, he's getting a little bit of flack, too. And some people are trying to call him out for his behavior on certain things. If you know what happened in Jacksonville over the last, I believe it was week and a half at this point, a lot of people have been calling out saying, hey, this is a direct, it, this directly comes. This is a direct impact of your policies. If your policies weren't put in place, then this behavior, this terrible accident might not have happened. And I think that is a little hyperbolic. I think it's a little dangerous to ascribe so much power to one man or his state's policies that this sort of thing couldn't happen or this sort of terrible act that is most definitely inspired by somebody who is not mentally healthy 
that that can all be blamed on one or two people or the government of Florida. That, you know, that takes away personal agency, and I think it's a little bit naive. But, of course, everybody has a narrative that they have to run with. So let's jump to this first quote from the article that really highlights some of the, the tweets that were sent out and some of the different statements that were given about Ron DeSantis. Quote, DeSantis derangement syndrome. News outlets base, baselessly linked Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to a deadly shooting last week in Jacksonville. Never mind that the government gunman, who authorities said hated black people, had no known connection to DeSantis or his politics. And now we'll quote from some of the tweets. This one comes from Steve People. Quote, Ron DeSantis scoffed when NAACP issued a travel advisory this spring warning black people to use extreme care of traveling to Florida. Just three months later, DeSantis is leading his state through the aftermath of a racist attack that left three African Americans dead. Black leaders in Florida and across the nation say they're outraged by his actions and rhetoric ahead of the shooting. My story with Brendan Farrington. So yeah, let, let him do his little shout out there. We also have another tweet from NBC News. Quote, Florida Governor DeSantis's policies towards the black community are facing new scrutiny after a racist shooter killed three black people over the weekend at a Jacksonville Dollar General store, an event the Justice Department is investigating as a hate crime. End quote. So they're obviously directly ascribing what happened here to Ron DeSantis, or they're at least saying the NBC one's a little bit nicer. It's like, Oh, DeSantis is reviewing his policies after this. But guess what that tacitly implies? That implies that they think that DeSantis believes that he did something wrong and that's why he's reviewing his policies so something like this doesn't happen again. I think that this is extremely, extremely stupid. I'm going to be 100% frank here. We cannot blame one person, one person's policies directly on the actions of somebody who is obviously filled with hate. I don't think if there was a different person in the governor's office, if there was a person who was of a different national origin, who are, who is of a different race, I don't think that affects this person. I, I feel like it takes away the, as I mentioned earlier, the personal agency. This person decided to do what they were going to do out of hate in their heart for a particular group. Whether or not DeSantis has policies, whether you agree with some of his policies or not, they're not going out and directly saying, oh, it's one it would be completely okay if you did this to a certain segment of the population. We won't blame you. We won't harm you, which would then, I think you could make a solid argument, would imply that, okay, this is an okay justified act, and then it could make it easier for people who wanted to do it to do it. But also, it's not a policy that's directly saying that it's morally okay to do these things. No, no, no. A lot of the things that DeSantis has changed is just how we present this information, how we're trying to make sure that it doesn't stoke more racial problems. At least that's how he would describe it. And this is something where the media just has to form a narrative. They have to say that, oh, these policies that we don't like, these directly affect what has happened here in this state. It's, they're using it as a cudgel. And it's honestly, it's kind of, it's sad. It angers me a little bit because they're not being honest. And in doing so, they're trying to directly hurt the reputation of Ron DeSantis, they're taking away the agency of this person and saying, oh, no, no, this is bl blamed on the Florida state government, rather than saying, no, this was an evil, evil person. And it's also describing people as useless, saying, oh, well, the, the people can't actually change anything without the government coming in and changing its policies. If the government changes its policies, it directly affects everybody's lives down to the absolute micro 
which is basically saying that nobody has any power over themselves. Nobody has any power over their actions. It is simply government policy that dictates how everything works. Now, maybe I'm being a little bit oversimplifying the issue here. Of course, government policies do have some effect on how people interact with one another, how certain people view certain issues. Of course, I'm not trying to deny that. But to baselessly claim that because of one or two policies, this person did exactly what they did, it's a leap. It's a huge, huge leap that ascribes too much importance and power to the government. And also, like I was saying, it's a political tactic, just like they did with Sarah Palin back in the day. Quote, former Alaska governor Sarah Palin was similarly smeared for the 2011 shooting of Rep. Gabrielle Gifford of Arizona. Palin had a year earlier posted a map on her website targeting Gifford and other Democrat incumbents for electoral defeat as the dispatches Nick Contigo, a.k.a. AHA Pundit, recounted. The belief that Palin had inspired Gabrielle's shooter remained so entrenched among liberals that it was still worming its way into the New York Times editorial a a decade later, when it almost, but not quite, resulted in a defamation judgment against the paper. Liberals waved the bloody shirt not because the mainstream right was radical, but because it wasn't, and they wanted it to be perceived that way. Guilt by association with the mass shooting for the Tea Party's favorite politician was the means to that end, end quote. So yes, they're trying to ascribe guilt purely because of some different policy, some different action that that person had taken. And it's very, very deceiving. It's very, very disingenuous. And honestly, it, it's, it's evil. I, I don't understand how we can sit here and say, oh, yes, 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 this was a completely correct political move. Uh, now, I guess, I guess in a world where I am giving them the most benefit of the doubt, you could say that someone that was not mentally correct looked at that map and said, yes, this was a direct target for Gabrielle Gifford. I was supposed to go after her. That's exactly what my overlords in government were telling me. But that one, I think that gives too much credit to the politicians once again. And two, it takes away the fact that maybe people had an actual issue with Gifford and they were so mentally disturbed that they decided to act on it themselves. Once again, personal agency. That person was disturbed. Thank God Gabrielle Gifford came out of that okay. Well, I take that back. She survived. Uh, she didn't come out of it okay. But that person was also evil. So was this shooter in Jacksonville. And trying to ascribe other people's evils and terrible actions to politicians that you don't like because you want to have a certain narrative around them, because you want to bring them down politically, because you don't want them to be the next vice president in Sarah Palin's case, or you don't want them to be a actual runner or contestant for the presidency this time around, like Ron DeSantis, is absolutely despicable. Quote, the same thing is happening to Ron DeSantis now. Because they can't defeat his agenda on the merits at the polls, some Democrats are trying to demagogue it as kindling for domestic terrorism and hoping that that moves the needle against Republicans among swing voters. They're leveraging an actual crime, an unusual horrendous one, to try to criminalize mainstream politics. They have very bad intentions, end quote. And I think that really, really sums it up. I think the author is a little bit light there. No, it's it's personally evil, in my opinion, to do something like this. Because 
you are directly destroying or trying to destroy someone's reputation based on the evil that somebody else has committed when, I don't know, maybe they genuinely do believe that it is because of his policies, and in that case, maybe you could give them a little bit more leeway, but I think that they're not naive enough and stupid enough to really believe that because of his policies, this is exactly what happened. So I think that it's even more evil if that's the case. That's just my personal take on it. It doesn't mean that it's end-all, be-all. You know, maybe they are really, really convinced that this is the case. I just, I can't believe it. I, I have to believe that the media is a little bit more intelligent than they seem to be letting on here. All right, so our next article comes from the Jairo. U.S. regulators might change how they classify marijuana. Here's what you need to know, and here's what it may mean. So marijuana has been a drug that has widely been used by our generation. I just did a Twitter tirade about it the other day. It is one of Gen Z's and millennials' favorite escapes. And of course, you know, there are the boomers and the Gen Xers who also love it, no doubt, but it has become really popularized throughout our generation. And during our lifetimes, there's been a big push to decriminalize it, make it recreational in certain states. But on the federal level, it is still a Schedule One substance. And this means that they can't do really thorough researching without getting special grants or approvals and things like this. And it also means it's a little bit tricky to have a business that sells marijuana even on the local level because you can't get certain loans from certain banks that take federal money and so on and so forth. So reclassifying it could be a big deal going forward. So let's discuss how this rule has come about and then we'll discuss how it actually affects things. Quote, the Federal Health and Human Service Department has recommended taking marijuana out of the category of drugs deemed to be not currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. The agency advised moving pot from that Schedule 1 group to less tightly regulated Schedule 3. So what does that mean and what are the implications? First of all, what has actually changed and what happens next? Technically, nothing yet. Any decision or reclassifying or rescheduling in government lingo is up to the Drug Enforcement Administration, which says it will take up the issue. The review process is lengthy and involves taking public comment, end quote. So nothing has necessarily moved yet, but moving it from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3 also means that they can lower the penalties for possessing it and things of that nature, which is something that Biden has tried to say that he's in favor of. He did that little bit of drug forgiveness on the federal level of people that were just possessing marijuana. Well, remember when the reporting came out, well, there's not actually that many people that are in federal jail for just possessing marijuana. It was a lot more of trafficking it and high volumes and things like that nature. So Biden has tried to make critical steps towards this. And I think it is obviously an appeal to the younger generation saying, hey, I care about the issues you care about. I know a lot of you want medical marijuana. I know you, a lot of you want recreational marijuana. You don't think that it's as bad as some of the other drugs that are on there, like heroin and so on and so forth, which there's a valid argument to be had there. But also, you know, there's also the argument on the other side, which marijuana, while it may not be physically addictive when it comes to the brain chemistry, that how it affects your brain chemistry, which I could think you could still argue is not necessarily true. It's like anything that gives you dopamine, just like our phones and our tablets. I mean, when you scroll through something, you get a small hit of dopamine. That's why we love sitting on our tablets all day. And when you do marijuana, you get dopamine. So you can get addicted to that feeling, which I believe is more psychologically addictive because you're running away from certain things. 
But even then, I would not ascribe it to physical addiction. And that's just because I, I want to draw that line there. But I could definitely say that people that regularly use marijuana and keep using marijuana, they do have a serious problem with productivity, or not all of them, but a lot of the people that I've known that have used it have had serious problems with productivity. They don't feel as though they're happy without marijuana when they don't when they're using it, they're happy, but then when they don't use it anymore, they're kind of like, oh, well, I miss that feeling. I want to go back to that. So I, I think there is a definitely valid argument there, and I think this needs to be talked about a little bit more seriously because a whole generation is really loving marijuana right now, and they have every right to do that. Guess what? You are an American. You are in a free country. You can put whatever designer blah, blah, blah in your system that you want to go ahead. But by not acknowledging that there are some downsides, there are some effects from that, I think that we miss a crucial part of the conversation. And this definitely needs to be a part of it since now the federal government is actually thinking about changing it from Schedule 1 to Schedule 3. So what's Biden's position on this, this new rule change and overall on marijuana? Quote, Biden, a Democrat, supports legalizing medical marijuana for use, quote, when appropriate, consistent with medical and scientific evidence. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said Thursday, that is why it is important for this independent review to go through. So, if marijuana gets reclassified, would it legalize recreational pot nationwide? No. Schedule 3 drugs, which include ketamine, anabolic steroids, and some acetyptamone codeine, I'm sorry, I butchered that, combinations, are still controlled substances. They're subjects to various rules that allow for medical uses and for the federal crime prosecution for anyone who traffics in the drugs without permission. Even under marijuana's current Schedule One status, federal prosecutors' prosecutions for simply possessing it are few. There were 145 federal sentencings in the fiscal year 2021 for that crime, and as of 2022, no defendants were imprisoned for it, end quote. Now, let's be clear that those are two different standards. The, they're saying one's the actual active prosecutions, and then they're saying the people that were actually in prison for it. So they could have gone away with not going to prison. They could have gotten sentences or fines, or they might have to do community service. There are lots of other things besides going to jail. So I think that we're going to prison. So I think they're using two different standards there. But the, the fact still holds that 145 federal sentencings in fiscal year 2021 out of 300 and I believe 30 million people at this rate. Yeah, that, that's a tiny proportion. So this is not necessarily being prosecuted to the full extent of the law, meaning that it's basically already okay. They're basically just not enforcing the law or going after these cases as they could under the statute that already exists. So it's basically already tacitly allowed. The only thing that's really going to change are the next two things that we want to talk about here, which are research and taxes. Quote, but rescheduling itself would have some impact, particularly on research and on pot business taxes. What would this mean for research? Because marijuana is a Schedule 1, it has been very difficult to conduct authorized clinical studies that involve administering the drug. That has created something of Catch-22, calls for more research but barriers to doing it. Scientists sometimes rely instead on people's own reports of their marijuana use. Schedule 3 drugs are easier to study, and in the meantime, a 2022 federal law aimed to ease marijuana research. So what about taxes and banking? 
Under the federal tax code, businesses involved in trafficking in marijuana or any other Schedule One or Two drug can't deduct rent, payroll, or various other expenses that other businesses can write off. Yes, at least some cannabis businesses, particularly state-licensed ones, do pay taxes to the federal government, despite this prohibition on marijuana. Industry groups say that the tax rate often ends up at 70% or more. So basically, because they are moving around and trafficking the Schedule 1 or 2, they can't deduct certain key expenses and have them come out of the, or sorry, reduce the tax burden that they would be paying. So they're kind of getting screwed here because it's not even fully legal on the federal level. Therefore, they're getting hit with those taxes because they're trafficking something, but it is legal on the state level, which means that they are able to operate legally, but they're getting taxed out the wazoo. And then banks also can't give them proper loans because they will be inculcated in this trafficking of a Schedule One or 2 drug. And also research. So research is really important because that topic that I brought up at the very beginning or that I mentioned, which is, hey, it may be psychologically addictive, but not necessarily physically addictive. Well, we have limited amount of research on the use of marijuana and how it affects people. Of course, we have research before it was scheduled. And then we also have a little bit of research that's come through over the last few years because there's been pressure to let these kind of studies come through. But the more we can ease that, the more research we can get out there so we can identify even more what marijuana does. It's kind of like alcohol. Alcohol is practically, it is a drug and it is legalized. And we can do lots of research and we can say, okay, it's actually not safe for you to drink this certain amount of alcohol. We don't have as many thorough studies on marijuana like that that can identify when it's risky, what type of people it's risky for, so on and so forth, what are the long-term damages of it, or an even more comprehensive study of how it affects different people with different genomes, things like this. It's hard to do because you can't get the grant money for it because it's dealing with marijuana or just because it's simply hard to start these sort of studies with the current laws that are in place. So if we had a more lax judgment of it, if we had a more lax system in place that would allow these researchers to do these really in-depth, you know, multi-year, placebo-tested, all these different trials, just like they've done with alcohol, we could have a better understanding of holistically how it affects people and how it could affect society in the long run to have it legalized or to actually get rid of it. These are serious conversations that need to be had, and especially with the push of it being popularized in this generation, I think we should have a really deep understanding of what it is. And the only way to do that is to have better research and identify all the aspects to it, not just the, oh, it makes me feel good, bro, or, oh, it's going to hurt your lungs. You know, these one-sided arguments that aren't necessarily fully fleshed out. All right, so let's jump to our last article that comes from Truth Out. Facing electoral defeat, Guatemala's ruling elite undermined nation's democracy. So, yes, this is this is definitely something that, you know, it's kind of returning to the first days of the podcast where I would do some national news and now I'm doing a little bit of international news, but I read this article and it was it was very very sad. And it was it made me feel as though the people of Guatemala were going to get screwed out of their democratic right to elect their president. And there's a lot of pushback by the elites. And when they say elites in this case, they do mean rich people, but they mainly mean the politicians and the judges that are currently in power, or at least who have a large amount of power in Guatemala. 
So let me read this first paragraph that kind of sets the scene. It kind of gives us a nice introduction. Quote, a progressive congressman and sociologist Arvino's victory in August 20th presidential runoff election was officially certified by the country's electoral tribunal on August 28th. Hours later, however, the tribunal's citizen registry provisional suspended the legal status of his party. Momentum Sevilla, Semilla. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. The losing party, Unidad Nacional de Esperanza, still refuses to concede, and prosecutors and judges already hit with sanctions by the U.S. continue to pursue legal actions against Semilla, as well as the electoral tribunal magistrates and election volunteers. It is one thing after another, said Victoria Tupin, an indigenous Maya Kakik sociologist. I think that they're using a strategy of repression and destabilization to wear us out, end quote. So, if you don't know how the Guatemalan system works, and let's be clear, I don't thoroughly understand it myself, so somebody can correct me down in the comment section. But basically, they have the election that ends on August, uh, it starts in July and it ends in January, basically. So they have time for runoff elections and things like this. They have time to create a new government to have a different transitional process, so on and so forth. So Avillo, he won the presidential runoff, and now the judges and the magistrates and other people in political classes are saying, no, 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 this is not legitimate. And then they suspended the party that he is a part of, which is Movimiento Samilla. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. I'm sorry. And they're basically saying, no, no, it's not even a party anymore. So it's not even a vehicle to properly get into office. So even if he was to go into the presidency, his support in Congress, which is, uh, or their version of Congress, their legislator, they will actually be forced to become independents, which I don't know if that will have as much of a huge difference. Maybe it will affect how they caucus together and how they're able to actually work together in certain areas because they're no longer part of the same party, but rather they're just independents. Maybe that's a tricky part of it, but it's just downright scummy and it's trying to undermine the will of the people. So it's kind of a power game. And I'll illustrate this with this next quote. Quote, in the days following the runoff election, prosecutors filed motions to strip three electoral tribunal magistrates of the immunity for prosecution their office provides for their initial resignation of recognition of a candidate with legal impediments, even though they retracted the decision. They also requested more documentation on the electoral proceedings and actors, including the tens of thousands of volunteers who staff the polling stations. The electoral tribunal has been complying with the request without being able to obtain information about the motives of the investigators. Tribunal magistrates told reporters on August 20, uh, sorry, August 31st. There are developments nearly every day in the post-election legal battles, and the situation is taking a toll on Guatemalans, according to Tubin. It's, it creates a destructive impact on people's emotional states, she told Truthout. People are very stressed and tired. And yes, this, this is another part of it, which is obviously they're trying to directly destroy the rights that these people have or directly you know, capture the will of the people and turn it in their favor. But also, this is something that when it directly affects the people of the country, they lose faith in the system. They get angry. They get stressed. And eventually, they may even come to the point where they say, I don't care. 
Just let it be over. Even if it's not the guy I necessarily wanted, let this game, this charade, be over. It could also have the opposite effect. It could stoke anger. When people are stressed, they can get angry. And maybe there may be an uprising or some sort of violence against these elites and judges who are trying to supersede the will of the people. I don't know. I hope none of that happens. I don't advocate for violence at all, obviously. But this is it could be a legitimate outcropping of these terrible, terrible times. And these elites, and I'm using this term specifically because they don't give many names here in this article, so I'm using it as a broad term. These elites, they're playing with fire here. They're trying to directly change the results of the election. They're being pretty brazen about it, too. And it's like they expect the Guatemalan people just to sit back and do absolutely nothing about it. Guess what happens when you have a class of dictators or you have a class of tyrants? Eventually, the people who aren't stupid... They, they're not stupid. I remind you of this. They see what you're doing, and they push back, and they uprise against you. And they were trying to do it in an electoral fashion with Mr. Arvillo's victory. And if they can't get it done that way, it will probably result to something that is less desirable. Let's be clear. So I think they're playing a dangerous game down there, and it's, it's sad to see a nation in the Americas that you know was a democracy, even though it was a, a heavily weighted one towards the top. Maybe you could call it an oligarchy, but it's sad to see when the people's wills are completely, completely thrown to the sidelines. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from Upworthy. Whale purrs with happiness as man shows her, showers her with hugs and kisses. So, you know, overall, the most loved animal or the most cared for animal in the sea is a whale. Quote, Adam Ernster, during his expedition in Baja, Mexico, after years of documenting whales from a distance, his dream of meeting the blissful blue gentle giants came true. And, you know, he's not the only one that was really happy from this situation, is what I'll, what I'll say in this case. Margarita enjoys the rub so much that the whale-watching videos that she returns to Estner. And also, she goes on to make a few little noises as he goes to kiss her beak or her nose that's covered in barnacles and, you know, gives her some hugs. So, it's really cute to see. And we, we love seeing those amazing interactions between humans and animals. So if you want to see the cute photos or videos of that going on, or you want to read any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Also down there, you can find the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcast, as well as Podvine. And you can find the Twitter handle, uh, at your daily flip. That's where I post Twitter tirades every Tuesday and Thursday. Not really scripted, not quoting from articles, but rather talking about a book I'm reading or different random ideas that popped into my head and I just kind of wanted to talk about. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.